It was a meeting of minds at the Sydney Opera House when Amani Al-Khattabe, founder of the blog Muslim Girl, came together in conversation with engineer and commentator Yasmin Abdel-Majid. You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks out of the Sydney Opera House. And today's episode is another stellar recording from Antidote Festival. Join Yasmin and Amani as they talk about what it's like being a young Muslim woman living in the West. We're going to start nice and easy. We're going to talk a little bit about your childhood. So you're an American. Your parents are one's Palestinian, one's Jordanian. Tell me a little bit about your childhood growing up in Jersey. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was I was born and raised in New Jersey. Um, you know, in in the states, there's kind of a connotation that goes with being a Jersey girl. It's kind of anticipated that you grew up on the beach there, on on the Jersey Shore. If anyone's familiar. Um, and yeah, I, I went. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs in a very homogenous, uh, conservative town. My parents cared a lot about education, so they actually uh, moved from New York back to New Jersey very early on, just so they can support that uh, that upbringing. And uh, I was enrolled in elementary school when 9/11 happened. It, it happened when I was nine years old at a very young age, and it kind of really just turned everything upside down. Where were, talk to me about the moment when 9-11 happened and whether or not, did you realise at that moment that it was going to be something that changed your life? I'm not really sure that I knew at that age what new era it would, it would bring on, um, but I was, I was in fourth, my fourth grade classroom and uh, it was yearbook day for us, so all of us little kids were all in our, in our new clothes, all excited to go out onto the soccer field and get our photos taken, and... Um, you know, all of a sudden there was a, an announcement over the PA system that there are pesticides being sprayed on the fields outside, and so yearbook was yearbook day was going to be rescheduled. Um, all the television sets in all of the classrooms, which were usually always on the morning announcements, uh, the, the news, um, all of them had been turned off. Uh, we were sitting in our classroom really with no idea what was going on, except uh, we would hear teachers running down the hallway in tears. Our own math teacher really was just having a breakdown right in front of us. And all of us thought that maybe she had like a grandparent that died or something, you know, our young, naive minds. And we're, we're trying to comfort her and tell her everything's going to be okay, you know, don't, don't be sad. And it made her cry even more. Um, and my mom, she always operates on Muslim timing, so she's at least 15 minutes late to everything. And she was <laughs> routinely late to pick me up from school. That day, all of a sudden, we had an early dismissal. Um, and she was right there, ready to, to pick me up as soon as I walked out through the doors. And before I even got into the car, she said, you know, Amani, something has happened. Uh, and, and that's when really she was trying to help me comprehend what really was going on. Before we talk about what happened after 9-11, paint a picture for me for, like, what life was like um, as a young sort of American who had Arab heritage and was Muslim in, in New Jersey? Like, yeah. was it something that was really prominent? Was it a huge part of your identity? How did that play out? I'm not sure if I was really that aware of it that early on, except to except knowing that, you know, my parents had this, like, funny satellite in the living room that played a foreign language and news from another part of the world. Um, but I was exposed to violence from a very early age, you know, like, watching the, the news from the Middle East, seeing um, bombs being dropped, tanks going onto lands of, of civilians, you know, right in, in my living room. Um, and so I was aware that there was kind of a, a lot of chaos happening around the world, but I was so far removed from it. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think that I was aware of, of my background or anything like that until 9-11 happened. And that same year is when um, I heard my first racial slur in the classroom by another fourth grader. And they told me, your people throw rocks at tanks. 
Uh, and that was the first time that I became aware, wait, I belong to a people, and that's something that I should feel ashamed about. Uh, and and I, I guess that was kind of like the, the catalyst for this, this new era of being very just hyper aware of, of who I am relative to the world around me. Funnily enough, your dad said something different though when you told him about that comment that your classmate made. Yeah, he, my dad was, he was so well equipped and ready to, to kind of help guide me through this time period. My dad actually, he's the one that knew on the day of 9-11 that it was going to change everything for us. Um, he's the one that said that what, what happened is, is very, very bad, and it's going to get much worse. So he had that ominous foresight, knowing you know, the way that the news was operating in the States at the time. Um, and, and that day, the first time that I, was, uh, that I heard a racial slur, I went home, I was in tears, I ran to my dad, and I told him, you know, this kid in school, he told me your people throw rocks at tanks. Uh, and I was really embarrassed about that, felt really bad about it. And my dad looked at me and he said, that's something you should be proud of, Baba. Your, pe your people throw rocks at tanks. And throughout my entire childhood, he kind of had a way of flipping things upside down like that for me to really take pride in where I come from. What do you think he was trying to, to teach you so early on? Resilience. Resilience and just being able to, to survive to get through. Um, I think that, and for me, I was a very sensitive child, so I think for him, uh, being an immigrant, especially from the Middle East, he really wanted to instill that, like, he wants to make you feel stronger, you know, and that I would be able to withstand a lot of what was coming for me, and I think that he knew that I would have to kind of grow really thick skin to be able to survive it. Although he was trying to teach you resilience, he also figured that it was going to be too much because he made the decision to then move the family to Jordan. Yeah. So talk to me about what that felt like. So you'd grown up in Jersey, mm -hmm. New Jersey, and then all of a sudden you were 13? I was. And your dad decided to move to Jordan. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I didn't know that... I didn't know why, really, we were moving. My parents described it as an adventure. You know, we're going to go to the Middle East. It's kind of... You know, when you, have, when you come from an immigrant family, it's kind of an ongoing rumor that one day you're going to go back home. One day you're going to travel back to your homeland, your, your parents' native country. Um, and so that, that moment had finally come uh, in 2005 when I was 13 years old. And, you know, they said, we're going to go to Jordan and you're going to meet your family there. You're going to learn a new language, be introduced to your culture and things like that. Um, and it actually wasn't until the process of writing this book when I started interviewing my parents about that time period that they actually revealed to me that the reason why they moved us is because they were terrified of their kids falling victim to <laughs> violence because of Islamophobia and them not being able to protect us. Um, and they were constantly getting phone calls from our relatives in Jordan asking, you know, like, are you guys okay? You know, this is really dangerous. We're worried for you. We're scared. Like, come here, leave. Uh, and, and so my dad finally heeded those, those calls and uh, he took us to Jordan, which was my very first time visiting the Middle East. And it really was just an eye-opening experience. Uh, going from being a young teenager in America where I was completely alienated from my surroundings, I was hounded day in and day out by the headlines, this propaganda about who Muslims are, what Islam stands for, to such, to such excru excruciating lengths that I actually started hiding my religion from my peers by the time I got to middle school. I didn't wear a headscarf at the time. So I still remember the moment that I, I lied for the first time when someone asked me, what religion are you? And, uh, you know, like in, in a split second, I was like, um, it's uh, something Mediterranean. I forget, you know, <laughs> I don't know what, what I was thinking. But um, yeah, you know, like then 
all of a sudden I was plopped into this region that I kept hearing about all these years and that was misconstrued to be something so heinous and monstrous and backwards and uncivilized and uh, I encountered some of the most generous and kind people I had ever met. Uh, you know, a culture of such hospitality uh, and, and such modernity, you know, like something that you wouldn't expect if all you heard about it was, was from television in the States. Uh, and, and that was when I became just so aware of the dichotomy between how things were being represented in Western media and what the reality actually was on the ground. Uh, and it was, it, it was a huge catalyst. Mm -hmm. I find you write about uh, two of your cousins that kind of uh, brought to light that the difference between, as you say, how the West wants to depict Muslims and particularly Muslim women um, and how they actually were. So I'd yes. love you to tell a f to share a few stories. Serene was the first cousin. Um, tell, tell us about what she was like and how she helped me and, then, and yeah. then tell us a little bit about Tamara. So Serene is um, the cousin of mine that's the closest in age to me in Jordan. She's a, a year older than me. And she was a, a girl that I had heard about all my life growing up. My dad always told me stories about Serene because he actually named her. He was going to name me Serene, but then he told his brother and his brother uh, kind of like stole that name. I was, Which I was is super cheeky. I was always really pissed off about that because I was obsessed with Sailor Moon as a kid. So when I found out my name could have been Serene, like Serena, the superhero, I was mad at my uncle that I had never met. I was like, <laughs> how dare he? Um, but I, I met Serene for the first time when I went to Jordan and... Uh, it was really cool because she was like teaching me the ropes. She was like, yeah, okay. So on this corner is where there's the internet cafe where all the kids go to like send emails to their secret lovers. Um, over here is like the neighborhood boy that I had a thing with, you know what I mean? Like stuff like that. And I was just like, oh my God, okay. Like tell me more. Uh, and she kind of like guided. I love yeah, the, the whole like the, transition. The, the secret messages. Cause like yeah. when I went to Sudan about 13, 14 and realized that my cousins were sending like cheeky secret yeah. texts and messages to their lovers. Yeah. I was like, you guys have, like, oh what? my God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's so cool. Cause it just speaks to the universality of youth all over the world. <laughs> Something we all have in common for real. It's too real. Um, but tell us about tomorrow. Tamara was, she was much older than I was. I don't even know like how many, like maybe seven years older than me. And uh, she was the troublemaker in the family. She was kind of like the bane of everyone's existence because uh, she, she had been, by the, when I met her, she had already been divorced once, which was already a taboo. She was very young. She had already been divorced once. Right by now, I think she's, she's onto her, like, her third divorce or something. Mashallah. Right? Like, mashallah, yeah. <laughs> God bless. Um, but she always... Tamara, Tamara had like such a difficult time just like obliging, especially men, especially in, uh, especially expectations of just like, you know, obeying your husband, staying in the house, things like that. Um, and she just didn't care for it. And uh, she also didn't stand for it. If she was abused, if she was mistreated, she would talk back. And, you know, for a lot of the men that she had in her life, that was unacceptable. And so she didn't, she didn't care about taking on that taboo and, and, and having to defy it. Um, and she was the one that was always really in tune with her sexuality, kind of to, get to, to the nightmare of a lot of the people that, that were around us at the time. But she had, like, boyfriend after boyfriend. She'd have, like, guys pick her up late at night to go for joy rides and things like that. Um, and so she was, like, a nightmare. She was a nightmare for everyone, that, like, everyone in our family. And it was just, like, everyone just always gossiped about Tamara and, like, her, 
her, uh, you know, just, just promiscuity. But what impact did that have on you as a teenage, a young Muslim teenager? Yeah, I mean, at the time. So when I got to Jordan, I experienced some extreme culture shock. It was really difficult for me to adjust going from being in the United States where, you know, I was already dealing with issues being a typical American teenage girl with self-esteem issues, body image issues and things like that. And then being thrown into a culture with totally different expectations. Um, and so... For me, I was kind of trying to just oblige the culture as much as I can to avoid any of that criticism. So I, at the time, uh, as a kid, was just like, Tamara, why do you have to do this? Like, why do you have to bring this, like, criticism upon you? Why do you have to stress us out? Like, why can't you just behave and, like, not engage in this, these types of activities and stuff like that? Um, but then, of course, as I got older, just Tamara's role in my life and the influence she had on me just became so much more apparent. Like, damn, she is actually like a feminist icon within my family, right? Like, she just did not give a damn. And that's something that I learned to appreciate as I got older, and especially as I started learning more about our place in the world, and uh, especially as Muslim women, especially navigating these issues around sexuality. And I was just like, wow, she was definitely uh, you know, far, far beyond her time. Where do you think she got her, I suppose, that will to challenge the status quo? I mean, she she already was a boss in, her, in, and, of her, in and of itself. So I think that for her, just like that pressure of those expectations just caused this rebellion to come out of her. Uh, and I think that that, that kind of is, is something that she and I have in common, especially as I got older. One of the interesting things that you said in the book when you talked about your cousins, um, Serene and Tamara, was that, uh, particularly Serene, you said they respected culture but not tradition. Mm. What does that mean? What's the difference between the two? Yeah, I mean, so Serene was, she was so cool when I met her because she actually, and na even now she's, uh, she's completing her doctor's degree. And so she, she's becoming a, a vet and is now one of the most well-educated uh, individuals amongst all of our relatives, like not just women, but men and women alike. Uh, and for her, she kind of was the one that, um, you know, while, while everyone was kind of getting married as soon as they were done with like high school or as soon as they were like entering college and stuff like that, she was the one that was like, no, I'm going to finish my education, screw those, screw those traditions, and I'm going to um, get what I need for myself first before I start thinking about um, anything else. Uh, but, of course, she still valued culture a lot. So a lot of conversations actually came up between she and I when I was kind of bringing the conversation about, you know, what was going on in the States and my, my American culture into her world of her Jordanian culture. Um, and really, like, even for me, there are some things about the culture that I didn't respect. I was just like, why are things being done this way, da-da-da? And then she would take offense to that, and she would really, like, draw the line for it. Um, and I, I, I completely respect that, right? Um, and so I think that there's definitely a difference there. And she was uh, just a very huge guide for me. How do you, what is your kind of um, balance between culture and tradition? How, what, what are your thoughts about respecting culture, respecting tradition? How do you engage with them? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm not sure if I really uh, give too much precedence to either now, neither tradition nor culture. Because there are some things I feel just uh, can be completely transformed or can, can change with time. Um, you know, and there are certain expectations that I think we, we break out of the mold from. And that's, that doesn't just go for you know, uh, the, the Islamic culture, but also American culture as well. Um, there are some things that I think can just be completely overhauled and we shouldn't really 
commit ourselves to to just uh, sticking with certain things because that's the way they've always been done. By the way, you've just reminded me. I think I asked around, and I think this is the first time there's been a Muslim woman interviewed by another Muslim woman on stage in the Opera House. So props to Antidote for making that happen. Very cool. But here's to changing tradition. So moving forward, you spent some time in Jordan, but then you ended up for medical reasons for your mother having to move back to the United States. And then all of a sudden you're in high school mm-hmm. um, and kind of dealing with not only taking parts of, you know, what you've learned in Jordan, but also this new kind of space. What was it like moving back? You just readjusted in Jordan. Yeah, I mean, the biggest change was that uh, right before we moved back, I had decided to start wearing a headscarf. To me, I uh, during my time in Jordan, you know, being able to learn about Islam and my my culture, you know, from the people who actually practiced it, you know, uh, kind of away from all of the misrepresentation that I was dealing with growing up, um, it really allowed me to fall in love with it. It made me fall in love with where I came from, with my background, and it made me just realize, you know, how much I had been pressured to kind of denounce this part of myself that that was unique, that did make me different. Um, and so to me, the, the headscarf became kind of like a sociopolitical symbol, you know, with less uh, a religious obligation, but more so a statement. And for me, I decided to put it on because I wanted, to, I wanted it to be my defiance in the face of Islamophobia. I wanted it to be so that, you know, this identity that I was being forced to distance myself from my entire life, now the first thing that people knew about me before they even knew my name was that I was a Muslim. Um, and I chose to keep it on when I came back to the States uh, but it was much easier said than done when I did come back. Uh, on my first day back when I was entering high school, um, I was walking to school with my dad. And on my way there, I had a breakdown. Like, I had a breakdown walking to school because I was terrified. I was like, oh, my God, you know, these kids that I knew um, that had known me my entire life, all of a sudden, they're going to see me with a scarf on my head. And they're going to know I'm Muslim. And they're going to they're gonna have certain preconceived notions about what hijab means. Um, and so... My dad told me, you know, like he saw how badly it was impacting me. And he said, listen, you know, you, if it's this hard for you, you don't have to wear it, you know. And uh, he, but he also said, you know, but if you do choose to wear it, then there's absolutely nothing that you wouldn't be able to get through or commit to in your life. Um, and so I decided to, to kind of like take, take the red pill on that one. And, uh, and, and I chose to keep it on my head. And that split second decision right before I entered the doors. I really debated whether or not to ask you a question about the hijab because, as we know, the standard kind of question when any Muslim woman is involved in any conversation ever uh, is to ask them about the hijab. Mm. Um, How exhausting is that? Or how do you feel about talking about the hijab? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of... uh, To me, it's just a a remnant of patriarchy, right? It's not really about the religion. It's about obsessing about what women are choosing to wear. We're still getting hung up on that. Um, And it's like... The headscarf is the least interesting part of any of us as Muslim women. We have so much more to discuss, so much more that makes up who we are. Uh, And so relegating the conversation to solely this uh, superficial level, I think, is a huge disservice to the conversation. And something else you pointed out in your book is that, um, I suppose, a reference to Edward Said's theory around what the headscarf or how the headscarf and the conversation about it plays in the colonized versus colonizer kind of piece. Do you want yeah. to expand on that slightly? Sure. I mean, the, the headscarf has always, uh, it, during after colonization, the headscarf really transformed into a symbol of access to women, 
to Muslim women specifically. And um, we know that historically, access to women symbolizes access to the people, to the culture, to the land. Uh, and so, you know, you saw like during, during colonization, especially when with, with uh, French colonizers in Algeria, for example, they would really con construct these fantasies about Muslim women there, right? They constructed the fantasy of the harem. They constructed the fantasy of belly dancing. It's literally just dancing. But they got so hung up on like eroticizing Muslim women and Arab women like that, um, that it just it, it conjured up into their own, uh, you know, just like dream of what it means to be entering this land and, and this people. And so the, uh, the, the fantasy of ripping a veil off of a Muslim woman's head became the pinnacle of penetration. Um, they would literally write, you know, like, uh, stories, novels, in which they had these like sexual scenes of these these conquerors coming and like removing the veil off the woman, and you know what, uh, and that's somehow like liberating them, freeing them, freeing them to their to for them to be able to access them, you know, um, and so that's why I think it's it's really degrading the way that the hijab plays out in conversations today. I mean, just last month I was traveling to France for the Cannes Lions Festival. Um, I was going there as a jury member uh, and. At the border, I was stopped, and I was being forced to remove my headscarf by border police. And there was absolutely no reason for it. It wasn't against French law, as they had lied to me and said it was. It wasn't for security purposes, because I wear a headscarf in my passport photo. And I actually look less like my, far less like my identification with my headscarf off than with it on. Um, but they kept repeating, this is France. And in France, we don't wear this. You have to take it off. If you don't take it off, you're not allowed to enter. We're going to send you on the, first, on the first plane back to New York. And they forced me to remove my headscarf. And to me, it wasn't an issue of you know, just being discriminated against as a Muslim. Like, no, it was an issue of you know, like being able to just dominate me as a Muslim woman, have, as asserting that control over my, my, my autonomy. Um, and it, that's why it was so degrading. You know, that, it's, it's really hard to kind of separate the two. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that the hijab went from something that was erotic to something that is oppressive in the span of a couple of hundred years simply because that was the reflection of um, who people or who colonizers decided um, they wanted yeah, or what they wanted true. to see. That's true. They, uh, it's, it's kind of like we're reflecting onto the headscarf what we want to believe, you know? Totally. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. So you got back to the US, you're settling in, you're wearing your hijab, and then you, you go online, you discover LiveJournal, and you start <laughs> talking about issues that are related to Muslim women, but conversations that are not happening anywhere else. Yeah. Is that where the idea of a Muslim girl came from? Wait, so does anyone know what live journal is? Yes, my live journal people in the house. Okay, no, like I have such an emotional attachment to live journal. Those were some of the best days when it came to just like dealing with life. Um, for those who don't know, uh, live journal is kind of like pre-Tumblr era. It was a blogging platform. And uh, for me, it was, it's kind of like sad why I was on it. It was because, uh, you know, like I just was such an outcast in high school at that point. Like coming back into high school with the scarf on my head caused me to lose a lot of friends. It caused, it resulted in a lot of extreme bullying in my school. Um, and I just didn't have friends. I couldn't connect with my peers. People didn't understand me. And for that reason, you know, after school, while everyone was going off to the mall to meet up with their friends or going to parties and things like that, I would just go straight home every day and I would just sit on the computer and go online. I would go online and try to find those friends and create and, and, and look for those spaces that I was deprived of in my real life. 
Um, and so every day, that, that kind of was the way that I, I navigated through all those issues. It's, I went on LiveJournal, I opened up my online, my online journal, and I would just blog every single day. And even until now, I have like every single day of my high school life chronicled, because that's all I did. I just like wrote about everything I was going through, how it was making me feel, how it was impacting me. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I started going to LiveJournal and, and to other places online to search for um, platforms for Muslims. You know, I was trying to find a place where I felt like I could belong. Um, and of course, that was a disappointing search. You know, the very few spaces that existed online for Muslims at the time, um, you know, they were, they were mixed gender, first of all. And when that happens, of course, male voices are going to rise to the surface more than, than women's voices. Um, and then the very few times the conversation centered around women, uh, it was always limited to, you know, how should a Muslim woman dress in public? Or whether it's okay or not for her to wear a nail polish? Like, things that were just completely irrelevant to my life and the important issues at hand, like the extreme bullying that I was experiencing because of my identity, like being a millennial first-generation American that was dealing with post-9-11 Islamophobia and how that was having a tremendous um, negative impact on my self-esteem and, and how I felt about myself and connected with, with my society. Um, and so I guess the motive very early on was selfish. You know, I, I finally came to the realization, like, look, I, I can't be alone in this. You know, there has, there has to be, uh, you know, other Muslim girls out there, especially from my generation, that are dealing with this too and have the same questions and are facing similar challenges. Um, and so I wanted to find them. So I started out on LiveJournal. I was always on there anyway. So I said, why not start up a community where it, you kind of had um, these little groups on LiveJournal where other like-minded individuals can kind of join and, and discuss certain topics. Um, so I started one on there called Muslim Girls. And within its first five days of launching, it got over a thousand members. Most of them were, or a lot of them were non-Muslims. Um, you know, they were commenting, ask, uh, asking for access to the community because they wanted, uh, they wanted a, a resource where they could learn about Islam and talk about these issues, you know, in a way that was accessible and unintimidating. Um, and, and what better way than to just learn from these girls that were just doing their thing and, you know, living life, you know, and, and where non-Muslims can kind of be a fly on the wall looking in. Uh, and, and from there, just seeing that there was this, this gap and an interest there and people wanted to have these conversations, the following year is when I started it on, it's created its own independent blog called MuslimGirl.net. It's now MuslimGirl.com. Um, and it started out with just myself and a group of my friends from the mosque. And we would just blog about what our lives were like as high school, as American high school girls that just so happened to be Muslim and the many issues that we were, we were kind of dealing with. And uh, just like put in, into perspective about like the kind of topics we were talking about at the time, for us it was literally like so taboo. One of the very first articles that we published on the website was about how to worship when you're on your period. <laughs> and at the time it was like, Yo. gasp. Like nobody was talking Stop about this. Out, yeah, yeah, for real. Like repent, you know, like nobody was talking about this out in the open. It was kind of like still taboo and something you should be like embarrassed by. To be honest, half the people in the audience now are probably like, oh my God, periods, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there were some, there were some writers that were like, please don't add my name to that, you know? Um, but that, that to me was like the start. It's like, oh my God, this, this is what, like these are the conversations we're having amongst each other as like girlfriends. Like let's put it online and let's, let's build that community out, you know? Um, and yeah, I, we're, we're far past that today. It's, it's normal to discuss that, but that was, that's kind of where we came from, yeah. So, like, Muslim girl grew up with you. So where are mm -hmm. you at today? What kind of things are you discussing on the website? <sighs> Definitely a lot of issues around race. 
uh, definitely a lot of issues around sexuality. Um, literally just, just a couple of days ago, I got a notification on my way over here actually traveling to Australia. Someone leaving a comment saying, you know, like, the blasphemy that is coming out of Emmanuel Katatpa's website, Muslim Girls, at an all-time high, you know, because we just so, so happen to publish, uh, you know, like, pro-LGBTQ stories, and we choose to elevate those, those voices that are marginalized even within our own community. Um, race is always a, a super contentious issue. How do you navigate that? Yeah. Um, the fact that you are Muslim women talking about these issues but are not scholars... Mm -hmm. um, and will probably face, I can imagine, a lot of backlash from within the community itself, not yeah. only from outside the community, but from within the community. How do you navigate that? Well, see, I think that goes into just our feminist perspective about our religion. You know, it is uh, ingrained within Islam that is, it is the only Abrahamic religion that doesn't have a middleman with your connection between... Like, we don't have fathers, we don't have priests... Um, the imams don't operate that way. Imams simply like lead, lead the congregation and whatnot, but we don't go through our imams to have a conversation with God because the point is it's supposed to be a direct relationship between you and your creator. Um, and so it, to us, it's kind of like our, it, it goes along the lines of our feminist perspective about Islam that you know, it shouldn't be just relegated to a small minority of scholars to be the ones to dictate how we choose to practice our religion. Um, because, of course, what happens then? Then you have uh, really the most privileged of society being the ones to dictate what Islam means. When Islam was intended for the common man on the street, the whole premise of our religion is reason and logic. It encourages us to ask questions. It encourages us to look at the texts and, and decide for ourselves individualistically how this religion applies to our individual circumstances. Um, and so... It's difficult, of course. I mean, this is an ongoing conversation. People say that we're inventing our own Islam. People talk about what is American Islam as if it's something completely different. Um, and, and really what it speaks to is just the need for us to recognize that if we're going to talk about Islam as, you know, the ideal religion, then we have to come to terms with the fact that it needs to be able to shapeshift and be malleable with each society. With, with us. It needs to evolve with us through time. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we have a disclaimer on our website that, no, we're not scholars. We're, we're trying to figure this thing out just like anybody else. You know, use, if, if you choose personally to take something from here and, and then go to a, a, you know, a more academic source, for example, you are more than welcome to do so. But these are strictly our opinions and, and our experiences and how we choose to live through them to really apply Islamic principles to our lifestyles in today's society. And so Muslim Girl is arguably quite a millennial space, mm -hmm. right? And something that you've often talked about as uh, providing Muslim women a platform to speak on their own terms. Yeah. What kind of... I always say our official language is memes. <laughs> it's true. It is a whole other language. <laughs> um, so what challenges do you think this generation is facing that previous generations of Muslims haven't? Uh, I mean, of course we experience this tremendous tragedy that really just changed the course of history forever. Um, and I think it's important for us to also acknowledge that there are some things that aren't new, right? It's, it's really difficult to have conversations about post 9-11 Islamophobia and millennial Muslims and what they're dealing with without almost erasing black Muslims and their experiences, right? Because black Muslims have been dealing with this for a long time, for generations before us. Um, you know, they can't, they can't take off their skin color. They've been exposed to, to racism um, far before non-black Muslims have been. 
Uh, and so that's why it's really important for us to make sure that that intersectionality stays present in the conversations we're having today about the, the issues that are arising, um, because it didn't start with us. It certainly is not going to end with us. And if we are going to be able to navigate through this time period, we have to look at those who came before us and, and how they survived and, and really build off of that. Um, personally, I think that black, black Muslim Americans have all the answers, but anti-blackness anti exists even within the Muslim community in the States. Talk, talk to me more about that. Just look at the Black Lives Matter movement, right? You see, for us, we saw that there were, uh, the, the Muslim community itself was largely disengaged from that movement. You know, like not that, the, the entire community wasn't all up in arms when Mike Brown got shot and bled to death in the street. Um, then, of course, the, the uh, sheer irony in that is that a couple of years later, when the Muslim ban happened, then you hear Muslim leaders talking about how can we engage the black community to really stand with us through this time and stuff like that. And it's like, well, where were you when you were being called upon to stand up for black power? And it's looking at those disconnects really just speaks to why our community is fragmented the way that it is and why we don't have those alliances being built up because um, really the, the structures that we're up against right now, the systemic racism and violence that we're up against right now, we absolutely need to build those alliances. The only way that we'll have a chance is if all these minorities do come together and build together. Why do you think they don't? Why do you think um, Muslim communities don't tend to engage in some of these other challenges for other minorities? I mean, there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding, right? I mean, within the African-American community, for example, there are Islamophobic, uh, Islamophobic attitudes. Um, within the Muslim community, anti-blackness obviously is, is very pervasive. Um, but there's a lack of dialogue going on. You know, like I was just at a, a, a conference in Miami a month ago, and it was predominantly black women that were there. And I was speaking to, you know, exactly like this, like the Muslim ban, Black Lives Matter, and how they are interconnected and things like that. And they're just like, yo, we had no idea because we're not talking to each other. We're not having those conversations. You know, the, the Black Lives Matter has kind of, has kind of for, uh, you know, forgotten about the fact that black Muslims exist, just like the way talking about the Muslim ban kind of neglects the fact that black Muslims have been just as impacted. And so for us as Muslims, we have a personal vested interest in, movement, in like the civil rights movement, um, in, in Black Lives Matter especially. Um, and so we need to kind of be able to navigate how those things are uh, really sometimes hard to even separate from each other um, if we really want to be able to move forward in those discussions. And so how have you made that part of the DNA at Muslim Girl? Because it sounds like that y your focus really is in those intersections. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why it's so important for us to... Uh, really just bring in as many diverse writers as we can. We seek out the most marginalized narratives that we can to, to really uh, be a part of our platform. Wait, most media yeah. places are like, we can't find these writers, they don't exist. <laughs> oh, they're out there, just people choose not to see them. Um, and, and that's kind of like our philosophy at Muslim Girl, it's that we're not, we're not a voice for the voiceless. We're not trying to speak on behalf of anybody. Everybody has a voice. There are just those that are systematically silenced. And so we want to create a platform, a space to really bring those voices to the surface. And how do you ensure that, um, that it's on your own terms? Like, how do you ensure that uh, you're not kind of minimizing things so that they're palatable, perhaps, to audiences? Um, you know, particularly looking... One of the issues, for example, that I can think of that you may have an interesting view on is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, mm -hmm. which for most Muslims is mm -hmm. something really, like that they kind of grew up with, but mm -hmm. you don't... the 
the conversations that happen in their homes are very different from the com conversations oh, yeah. people engage with publicly. Yep. So how have you been able to kind of hold on to that um, truth, I guess? I mean, I honestly think that that's why Muslim Girl has come to the point where it's at now, is that for us, we never... We never pandered to corporate news or mainstream media. We never sought, we never sought that affirmation from them or for them to, to give us airtime or to, to tell us like, yes, you know, we'll cover you, we'll represent you and things like that. We instead chose to make that, this space about us. You know, like we, we experienced our formative years through a complete assault on our identities. So we were, as kids, as teenagers, you know, we were robbed of the opportunity to really just have those conversations we were discussing our identities for ourselves and what that meant for us. Um, and so Muslim Girl is intended to be a space for us to do just that. It's about us, it's our moment to really make it about our conversations and what we wanna talk about. Um, and in that way, inadvertently, that's what caused mainstream media to come to us and start seeking out our, our voices and using us as a resource. Um, but that really is our philosophy. Like we, we obviously are very uh, aware of the fact that we have a non-Muslim audience um, and that there are people outside of our community that are looking in at these conversations, but that's the hope. It's that we are able to take down those stereotypes and those preconceived notions by simply being ourselves and being authentic and real. Um, Rennie Edo-Lodge, who's another author at this conference um, or at this festival, talks about how when she decided to draw the boundaries for what conversations she wanted to have, mm. uh, it ironically, that ended up having... Well, enabling better conversations because it was on her terms. Uh -huh. Would you say like a similar thing happened with Muslim Girl? And can you give us any examples of like yeah. a perspective that you provided that all of a sudden mainstream media was like, oh my gosh. Oh yeah, I mean, so this past year, one of my favorite moments since Muslim Girl's inception was launching the first global Muslim Women's Day on March 27th during Women's History Month. Um, and what Muslim Women's Day is, is basically it was in the aftermath of like the Women's March, the largest protest in what, what they're saying is in human history. Um, everyone was really like still kind of like on a high from that. And at the same time, we were having these conversations unfold in the aftermath of the implementation of the Muslim ban in the States as well. And so we wanted a moment to kind of like respond to that uh, with positivity and with love. Um, so we created this online campaign called Muslim Women's Day, hashtag Muslim Women's Day. And um, you know, aside from, of course, calling upon the public to really sh like share, share images and stories of the Muslim women in their lives and, and to really just celebrate Muslim women for the day, most importantly, we reached out to our media partners, you know, these the most visible digital brands on the internet, and we asked them to partner with us on this and basically agreed to, on this day, flood the internet with positive, diverse content centering Muslim women's stories. And they did, you know, we got like MTV, Teen Vogue, Cosmo, Glamour, just like any like major brand that you can think of, they all just jumped on this. And uh, it was really cool because we, uh, it gave us the opportunity to really consult them directly on the stories that they were working on. You know, they were coming to us and saying like, okay, you know, you guys are coordinating the stories across the board and everything, so this is what, what we want to work on. And I'll never forget this one conversation I had with one, of these, uh, with one of these magazines and they were saying like, okay, so this is our list from Muslim Women's Day of the stories we want to write about. Um, first one. Beauty secrets of Muslim women. <laughs> and I was like, okay, um, you know, like, let's think about this for a second, right? Imagine, imagine if you were to write an article called Beauty Secrets of Christian Women. <laughs> and they're just like, no way, like, that's impossible. What are you talking about? It's not interesting, you know? It's like, Christian women are so diverse and blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, 
exactly you know like Ta-da. Yeah. <laughs> and there in that moment it's kind of like light bulb went off and they're just like oh oh my god okay you know and so we kind of like were able to help them shapeshift that and uh, instead we suggested that they focus on beauty secrets from Muslim women from the banned countries for example right kind of like in a way to talk back to what was going on um, and so yeah like Basically, it, it allowed us an opportunity to just change the culture around the language that we were using with Muslim women, the way that we were covering those stories, um, and, and really have that impact ripple outwards. But yeah, and, and even on our own platform, we, we definitely dictate the conversations that we're having. You know, like we don't talk, if we're talking, we have one of the most popular sections on our website is called hashtag Muslim Girl Fire, you know? <laughs> and we basically, we profile badass Muslim women and everything they're doing, and let me tell you, like we never talk about the headscarf because there's so much more to discuss. Um, and even, even wait, what? Muslim women are more than their headscarf? Oh Sorry. my god, it's mind blowing. <laughs> you know, just I need to hold on to my scarf right now. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even during during the elections and everything, like we, there was a time period where we actually suspended coverage of Trump. We refused to cover Trump on the website because. There was one day where I went on our homepage and I saw that it was flooded, just like, just, it was entirely pictures of Trump's face. Like, nobody wants to look at that, first of all, you know? And it's just like, Trump this, Trump that, da da da. And I'm just like, this isn't, the conversation isn't about us anymore. You, we gotta take it back to home base, you know? And so we decided that we're not gonna talk about him. We're not gonna give him any more airtime. This isn't about him. You know, we're not gonna basically do exactly what me- mainstream media was complacent in, in the first place. Um, and so, yeah, like in, the, in that way, that's the beauty of having alternative media sources and having our own platforms online is that we get to direct the conversation. That's, that's the whole point. What are Muslim girls, women, wanting to talk about? Like what are the things that you find get the most traffic, get the most interest? Um, where, where is their focus at the moment? The main thing that Muslim women want to talk about is really just how these issues are impacting their everyday lives. You know, we're, we're basically just left out of these conversations. You know, Muslim women are always talked about. We're always ha- we're always dealing with trolls online. We're always dealing with assumptions about who we are and what we stand for and things like that. And it's like we just want to we just want to say like no, this is who we are. And, and also we don't want to have to perform. We don't have to put on an act. Like we just want to be ourselves. Um, and and you know o- another thing that I think is really uh, kind of like a source of anxiety is that a lot of times we can't have those conversations amongst ourselves about issues that we're dealing with because then the Islamophobes immediately hijack the conversation and turn it against us. You know, like they hold it against us and be like, ha-ha, we told you you're oppressed. Ha-ha, we told you that, you know, like Muslim men hate you and stuff like that. And it's like, no, that's actually not what we're saying. Um, and so that, that uh, you know, like double eye is something that we have to also like kind of teeter on the balance with within Muslim girl. It's like we want to clean our own dirty laundry but yet we know that all these people are kind of watching us, they have an eye on us, and that whatever we put out there is going to be kind of like taken and, and picked apart. Um, and that's a precarious position that Muslim women are in. But I think that, you know, we're, we're navigating it with a lot of strength, dignity, grace, just like, just like you know, our legacy, truly. And what's next for Muslim girl? So Muslim girl is kind of still, you know, expanding to, to enter into all these spaces that we kind of have been denied access to. This past year, just, just this past Ramadan, uh, a month or two ago, we launched the first um, brand partnership, brand collaboration of its kind in the commercial space for Muslim women in the States. We partnered with a huge beauty company called Orly to create the first 
Um, you know, like beauty collection catered specifically towards Muslim women. So it, we did nail polishes called Halal Paint, hashtag Halal Paint. Um, and we basically uh, curated a collection of nail polishes that were air and moisture permeable for women that wanted to wear them for ablutions. Um, and that also were halal certified, which was mind blowing to have a product that was halal certified on the mainstream marketplace by such a beauty titan. Um, and we were able to like name the nail polishes after Muslim girls, like the perfect a manicure, you know, um, ignore the haters, uh, what the Fatima, you know, <laughs> I think that's my favorite. Yeah. Um, and so really it was, it, it went viral because it's, it cracked open a space in the beauty industry where you don't typically expect to see Muslim women present. Um, and so I think that that really is uh, a, a precursor for where Muslim girls headed. It's really, we're just trying to, um, you know, just break through, break through those glass ceilings wherever we can, barge in through those doors, knock, the, knock down the windows and in whatever avenue, whatever industry that we can. How difficult do you think it's going to be to hold on to your integrity and voice entering these, entering these new spaces? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, for example, that Orly line. <laughs> um, the nail polish collection that we did, literally just a few weeks after we launched it, it came to surface that the CEO was actually on social media posting racist, anti-Muslim, anti-black comments. Right? Just couldn't help themselves, could they? <laughs> Gotta always ruin it, man. Why? Um, but it basically just was staring us in the face. You know, the commodification of Muslim women today. Because we are hot right now. We are a trending topic. Like, people know. Brands are aware that all they have to do is throw in a Muslim woman with a headscarf in one of their marketing campaigns, and it'll go viral and get them way more PR than they could possibly pay for. Um, and that presents a lot of issues, right, about is our companies, our brands, our organizations, are these spaces really representing the morals that they are touting? Um, and so it placed us in this position where people were calling us out and they were like, what, what are your principles? How dare you collaborate with someone who's racist and who's actually anti-Muslim as if, as if we even knew that in the first place? Um, and so, you know, we actually, after attempting to engage with the brand and, and trying to get them to see the light, <laughs> you know, and kind of a own up for, for those mistakes, um, it really didn't get anywhere. And so we made the collective decision to pull the, to pull the line. So we sold out the entire inventory in its opening week on pre-orders alone before it was even available. Um, and then sadly, you know, we had to discontinue it because it no longer represented what the partnership was meant to represent. Um, but really just the incredible reception to it, to us really just proved that there is a desire for more diversity in the spaces around us. People do want to see a reflection of themselves in the products that they purchase. They want to say in what those products are. They want to say in how they're represented, you know? Um, and so we can, we can only continue moving forward from there. We have a, do we have a question at mic one? Um, so I have a question about communicating across different uh, social and cultural groups. As a, a relatively privileged white person, um, growing up in a not necessarily that diverse area of Sydney, I'm always very curious and very ready to have these discussions and I don't want to have these discussions mm. just with like other white girls who have a middle income because what we're just going to sit there agreeing with each other. But I have trouble knowing, you know, when is it, when, is, when are those sort of questions welcomed and, oh, great, someone wants to know about my culture and when is it 
I don't want to just be the token person responsible for the views of my whole group. Why can't you just treat me as, you know, a regular friend? How do you suggest that we navigate that as in the group of non-minority people? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, when, it, when it's on a personal level, I don't think that those questions should be shied away from, you know, especially if you are trying to seek uh, more diverse social circles around you and things like that. I think that maybe one of the um, easiest ways to kind of deal with that is to become more conscious of the media that you're consuming, that any of us are consuming. I think that that's a responsibility incumbent upon all of us, um, is to be aware of the sources where we're getting our information from. So for example, if we are talking about the Muslim community and how issues are impacting the Muslim community, then seek out media sources that are Muslim, you know, that are the people that you're, you're seeking to understand. Um, and, and that's a, a great way to kind of like build up that knowledge. But I will say also that, um, you know, just knowledge and understanding and, and getting to know different cultures aside, I think that it, it shouldn't be dismissed or um, undervalued the importance of having those conversations within your own social, social circles as well with other white women, um, especially if you do ha if you're woke and you kind of do want to create change and stuff like that. Usually creating that change within our own immediate social circles is the most tremendous impact that we can have because that's where it starts. Um, you know, at, at one of my talks, the, the first talk that I ever did in the South, in the States, in a red state that voted for Trump um, during the Q&A session, which was predominantly white folks, um, there was one white woman that decided to stand up during, during the Q&A, and instead of asking me a question, she instead decided to make a comment directed at the, the other white people that were in the room, and she said, you know, my fellow white people, I just want you all to know that it has been studied that there is more of an impact in being called out by your own social class or your own, your own fellow like privileged uh, people than to be called out by those kind of like below you on that like hierarchy, right? So what I mean by that is, for example, that um, a white person getting checked by another white person on their racism is more impactful than them getting checked by a black person about that racism, right? So that shouldn't be undervalued. Like it's really important for us to hold down the line in that way because it creates an, an, uh, kind of like a, an outward ripple. Thank you for the thank question. Thank you. Number two. Hi, thank, thank you. Um, I'm a teacher. I teach in a very homogenous area of Sydney as well. Um, and I teach a year 12 class where we talk about Islam. That's one of our topics. Um, and we go to the mosque every year on an excursion to the place where people from other places live. And, um, and my students... When we go there, we oftentimes have tour guides who are Australian-born Muslims, so they have Australian accents. And a lot of my students, they are openly shocked when somebody speaks to them of a Muslim faith with an Australian accent because they're like, oh, Muslims are foreign people. They don't come from here. Um, so, and they, they're always... So when you speak about diversity of the Muslim community and the... And the sort of, um, they associate Islam with the Middle East and they associate mm -hmm. Islam with foreign people. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess my question for you, and I'm, this is a great resource for me, your website, which I've only just found out about today, which is awesome. Um, so do you think in the future that technology and new media platforms will allow uh, a broader diverse community to understand the diversity of the Islamic community as well and therefore bring about change in terms of Islamophobia? I mean, first of all, Yasmin, thank God for Muslims like you, huh? <laughs> with, your, with your Australian twang. No, Yo. but for real. <laughs> no, definitely. 
Um, no, I mean, it, exactly, yeah. I mean, the internet and social media is kind of making us more uh, aware of these differences and, and uh, that we aren't kind of like all just one group of people, right? It kind of speaks to the misrepresentation of Muslims, um, that we are constantly being othered. And uh, sp even, the, even the representation that we're kind of gaining in the media now is still one-dimensional, right? It's often, you know, if we're talking about Muslim women in the media, she's often brown, always wearing a headscarf. We don't really see past anything else when Muslim women are so much, uh, so, so much more vastly diverse than that, and they fall all across the spectrum. Um, but I think that definitely having access to social media and the internet is kind of, uh, it's democratizing that, that access to different individuals and to different information and things like that. And I think that it's extremely important for especially young people to become uh, really just more acquainted with people of different cultures and backgrounds. Like in the United States, for example, all these polls were coming out during the election that the majority of Americans have never had a Muslim friend before. And yet we, we just elected a president largely based off of his policy platforms about the Muslim community. So it's like, we don't even know who Muslims are. We don't know how this will impact them. We don't know why we're banning them. But hey, you know, we're going to elect this guy that just caused all this uh, tremendous irreversible damage now. Um, but also, you know, I was actually just having this conversation with someone in, in Melbourne this morning. But basically, like, you know, he was saying... What about, what about using the word feminism? You know, like, can't, can't that be off-putting to a lot of, like, conservative Muslims that say, like, feminism, it, we, we already have Islam, we don't need feminism, things like that. And what I said to him is that, you know, just, like, having, having Muslims that kind of speak the native tongue and they're just, like, part of the community and stuff like that, which every, every community in every walk of life has Muslims. They're everywhere, you guys. Creeping through, yeah, for real. Um, but basically, what I, what I told him was that in Islam, you know, we believe that all of the messengers of God were delivered to the people in their own tongue, right? So there are like hundreds of messengers historically, like throughout Islamic history and things like that. And for each region of the world that those messengers were delivered, they all spoke the native tongue because that's the way that you're supposed to kind of like build that understanding. Um, and so for us in today's day and age, for example, feminism is the way that we, we, regard, we, we call gender equality, which is one of the founding principles of Islam, but that's just how people access that, that message, right? It's like, yes, Islam is feminist. Boom, okay, we get it. Moving on, you know? Um, just like, okay, like, Australian Muslims exist. Yasmin, cool, moving on, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's extremely crucial. I think it's, it's uh, extremely powerful as well. Thanks for the question. We have another question at number one. Um, firstly, salam alaikum, ladies. Thank you for salam coming so I love what you're doing, Amani. Quick question though, do you think that the changes that you're trying to bring about through conversation and your platform will eventually lead to changes like things like a mixed congregation in the mosque? Um, I really hope that will happen one day where women and men can pray together in a mosque. I'd love to take my family to a mosque like that one day. Do you think that will happen? And secondly, if I may squeeze in a second question, how do you think Muslim women that challenge the status quo will be accepted by Muslim men. And by that, I'm, I guess I'm really getting to the point of Muslim women that challenge these things, will they ever get married to Muslim men? <laughs> Mate, you sound like my dad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yasmina, will you ever get married? Uh, Allahu alam, I don't know, God knows, God knows. Sorry, Sorry there's, there's a little bit of the brown auntie creeping into it. <laughs> Wait, why? Do you have any single sons? 
by you. <laughs> this is how we do it in the community, guys. Yeah. <laughs> right? This, this is literally arranged marriages in the modern era. Like, this is what it looks like. Um, no, but these are great questions. I think that, you know, in, in terms of the question about uh, mixed congregations, for example, and other, like, radical uh, practices in Islam, I think that the service that Muslim Girl provi provides is really creating a space where those conversations can happen. Those al alternative perspectives and interpretations of what our religion really looks like, the way that it can be practiced. Um, for example, one of our most contentious essays that we published last year, um, it was a personal essay by a trans Muslim woman convert. So, Ooh. yeah, that alone. And then on top of that, in her essay, she referred to Allah with the she pronoun which was a bombshell, right? But, like, that's the whole point. It's like... Not literally. <laughs> Not literally. Sorry, I'm don't, sorry. Don't quote me on that one. Don't quote me on that one. I mean, I had to do it. Yeah, I know. Good, good job. The, the cliche Muslim jokes. Thanks, Yasmin. So... No, but, I mean, that, that, it was great, right? Because as many, as, just as much as it pissed people off, like conservative Muslims, people that didn't really understand that, it also gave way for us to think differently. All these conversations started popping up, like, why is it okay to refer to God with a she pronoun? Um, and, and likewise, you know, why is it okay to have mixed congregations? Some, a concept that is so far beyond some people that they don't believe that that's even a possibility. Um, and so I think that it's necessary for us to cultivate safe spaces where we can have those open and fruitful discussions, um, where people won't get judged, where they can um, kind of be able to connect with other people and have those conversations as well. Um, and in terms of your second question, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think that, that with, I mean, this is actually something that I heard from a lot of Australian Muslim men since I've been here. It's only been like four days or something, but I've heard over and over again is that, yeah, you know, we, we keep taking a look around, mate, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and we see that like, you know, the majority of the leaders emerging from the Muslim community are women. You know, it's like it's Muslim women kind of taking the lead on things. And it's like, yeah, you know, Muslim women have historically been leading the way with social movements and things like that. Um, and so I think that the more, you know, we, we keep pushing forward, the more it's kind of like Muslim women are going to have to get over it. You know, like this is this is us. This is our, our community, you know. So I think that definitely as, as, as we continue progressing forward, the more normalized it will become because it is normal. You know, it's just for some reason... The way that we practice Islam in society today, Muslims have a very difficult time of contextualizing that Islam within our 1,400-year-old history. It's like you're just born into it, or you convert into it, and you think that this is the way it's, it's always ever been, and it's not. I'm so sorry to do this, but we are out of time. Aww. I know, I know. There's a couple of questions. Fortunately, though, Amani will be selling and signing books right after this, um, and so the ushers will can point you in the direction of where that is. Um, I also just wanted to take, like, just a sec to say to the previous questioner, in Islam, there's this, this concept of nasib, right? Like, your destiny in terms of your partner. And so whenever my dad brings up the whole, like, why aren't you married? You're 26. I'm like, Dad, it's written. And if, you know, maybe they're, like, just chilling <laughs> somewhere in some random country, but you just got to have faith that it's written. Um, and, and that's, you know, a, that's a good excuse. I'll use yeah, that one next yeah, time. Yeah, mate, it's the way... <laughs> So, everyone, can you give it up to Amani? Thank you so much Thank for that you. fantastic Thank you conversation. That was Amani al Katabe, and she was sharing the love with Yasmin Abdel-Majid on the Antidote stage. And if you like this talk, make sure you subscribe to Ideas at the House. You'll find us on your favourite podcast app. Next week's episode is a talk from Micah White, one of the minds behind the Occupy protest movement. Until then, podcast listeners. <laughs>